Stand by for action. The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language. It also contains a heartfelt request for your assistance. Please oblige. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Tuesday, the 28th of July, 2015. No, it's not. No, it's not Tuesday, the 28th. It's Friday, the 31st. Friday, the 31st of July, 2015. And that's far from the last thing that's just wrong with this podcast. NASA sends a boy band to Pluto. New Horizons will carry out a flyby over the next three days. Prime Minister Crusader Rabbit makes sense of the Middle East, kind of. And we hear some presciently ironic words from Singapore. Come at me, motherfucker. This is the 9pm I Can't Believe It's Not a Planet. Right, I mean, for starters... This wine is bloody terrible. Okay, it's a $7 Spanish Tempranillo. Uh, Shall I name them? Yes, you need to avoid this. Famillo Rivero Lechia, which I think means the family that were thrown in the river and devoured by leeches. $7 Spanish Tempranillo. Um... I'm going to give it another go, but because um, I did try this last night, that is uh, the whole time thing. Okay, this bit of me talking now is Friday night. I first tried this wine last night, Thursday night, and yeah, um, it's a non-vintage. That is to say, it doesn't own up to what year the grapes were grown in, so meh. Uh, It's an unremarkable deep red colour. I mean, it's just kind of a bland wine-coloured colour. It has no nose to speak of. Red berry flavours, says the back of the bottle, but yes, um, it's utterly lacking in character. I suppose it could become opposition leader. Soft tannins, it alleges. No, where? There there are, you know, there's there's no, no palate. How shall we review this? This dull wine would be ideal for hosing down the patio or during a hiking emergency, washing out infected cuts and abrasions. That is to say, it is a $7 non-vintage Spanish Tempranillo. Uh, later in this podcast, you will hear a little bit from Phil at Divine Cellars at Wentworth Falls. Not talking about another wine I've been drinking this week um, because it's a secret. I'm not allowed to tell you about that wine because, no, you're not allowed to know. It's our secret. Anyway, this is the 9pm I Can't Believe It's Not a Planet. A more appropriate name for this episode would probably be the 9pm your country is fucked and so is the rest of your pathetic, worthless planet, you cunts. But that's probably too long. And I'm pretty sure that Apple's iTunes doesn't allow bad language in episode titles, the pussies. So for a start, fuck you, Apple. This is, uh, as 
You may have guessed my second go at recording this episode's opening sequence. My first attempt was indeed on Tuesday, the 28th, and I got 17 minutes of bed put down. But then when Wednesday hit, I realised I simply hadn't been angry enough. Why should I have been more angry? Well, look what's happened this week with the Speaker of the Australian Parliament, Bronwyn Bishop, and her taxpayer-funded joyrides, and I should be angry with her stubborn refusal to kind of admit that she's actually done anything wrong, and I should be angry with this entire fucking nation of Australia for the whole Adam Goods thing. I am seriously not going to talk about that tonight at all, though, because I'll get too angry, too angry even for this podcast, for fuck's sake. That's amazing. But, you know, the key words are that. I mean, Adam Goods, G-O-O-D-E-S, it's sport, it's racism, it's rednecks, it's idiot, hat, white-skinned conservative commentators trying to say, oh, it's not about racism when it fucking is. Look that up somewhere else in the media. I've had a gutful of it. Anyway, the whole thing that I started recording on Tuesday does have some kind of good bits in it, and it does set the theme, and it does stay relevant in a strange kind of way. So, look, here it is. Ah, life. Life is an endless series of rabbit holes, really, each filled with successively larger and more psychotic rabbits than the last. And the psychotic rabbits happen regardless of whether you want them to happen or not. So, welcome to life. There are things in life that are planets, and there are things that are not planets, and I'll talk about both of those categories of things shortly. But first, yes, it's been a month, more than a month, since the last episode of this fine podcast, and why... Well, computers and winter, two things that are very closely intertwined, I think. Now, I did avoid uh, what appears to have been the most challenging part of this winter so far, namely the snow that hit so much of eastern Australia the other week. I wasn't up here in the Blue Mountains at the time, but down in Sydney, so there was no snow. Uh, That was kind of good. But winter did have some effect because I think that's what's finally killed my computer, my MacBook Pro. It's getting on towards four years old. It's been dropped a few times. There's uh, cracks across the screen. There's some nice dents in the case. It's been through, and I think this is more important, so many heating and cooling cycles, you know, chilled down to five degrees Celsius or below at night and then turned on and immediately used to watch a video heating it up. And, and that flexes all of the circuitry and that causes uh, solder joints to fail. And, well, <laughs> it's, it's really done too many of them. It's finally started throwing so many faults as to be useless and these are hardware faults it's not reinstall the software the machine she is screwed i was losing hours to reboot after reboot trying to convince it that yes you do actually have wi-fi hardware installed would you now kindly please connect to the internet that would be lovely thank you because i'm on deadline and yeah it's fucked so um On top of that and various other stresses, it's been final straw time for that little machine. And, you know, final straw time for me, really. And in winter, I don't have that many spare straws to begin with. 
So a big thank you to Justin Clackety for the loaner MacBook Pro that uh, I'm using to produce the podcast that you're listening to right now. And thank you, dear listener, in advance, because even though this whole broken computer thing isn't entirely your fault, you're going to get me a new computer, and I'll explain shortly how you are going to go about doing that. But before we get to the scrounge zone, um, oh, what else has been happening in the last month? I've this afternoon gone through uh, all of my tweets for the last month to see if I can find any clues and on the 24th of June I noticed two tweets I am deep down in the Hillsong dash porn nexus rabbit hole and I'm not having very much fun I have made a grave grave error of judgment I don't think we should explore that any further I think he'll agree right Uh, Something happened in Greece, something to do with economics, apparently. I don't understand it, but I do know that if your news story about this thing included either the words Grexit or Greferendum, then you are part of the problem and should be ashamed of yourself. I was also disturbed to see that uh, some, quote, journalists, unquote, referred to uh, the Greek situation as being an economic Sarajevo by which I assume they meant that Torvald and Dean would be performing. That goes back rather a long way, doesn't it? I don't think many of you will get that joke. Oh, well. uh, Bristol Palin is pregnant again, for those of you who were keeping track. Uh, Bronwyn Bishop's plane ride to Geelong. Now, this has uh, been in the news <laughs> for weeks now. Um, I'm particularly impressed that that, that helicopter flight at $5,200... Uh, on a per kilometre basis, costs 474 times as much as NASA's New Horizons mission to Pluto. Calculations there from Paul Kidd. Thank you very much. So, by my calculations, we could afford to send 474 politicians to Pluto. Or to Geelong. Or... I'm confused. How does that even work? Uh, Actually, I don't think it works like that at all, but fuck it. If I were to be a successful opinion writer, it's high time I started ignoring facts, don't you think? Um, I was amused to see that uh, Bernd Fagin, the uh, leader of the opposition, which a bill somebody, um, didn't think much of... uh, Bronwyn Bishop's helicopter ride. He used uh, some line, the uh, coalition MPs are now wafting through the air above us. No, no, Bill. Uh, I don't think Bronwyn Bishop, Bronhilda, wafts anywhere. She's not for wafting. Christopher Pine, (laughs) he'd be a wafter. What else happened? Uh, Prime Minister Crusader Rabbit decided to think up an opinion on the uh, deal with Iran over nuclear weapons. Uh, look, uh, we give it a cautious welcome, but I probably should stress uh, the caution at least as much as the welcome. Uh, yes, we certainly want a nuclear-free Middle East. The Middle East is the most uh, unstable and dangerous part of the world. Yes, Prime Minister, you seem to have forgotten about Israel. Are you going to uh, tell them, or shall I? It's always fun when uh, Prime Minister Abbott lets loose on 
foreign relations because it really is his strong point, isn't it? Um, I noticed back in back in June, at the end of June, he also did a bit of foreign relations in Singapore. Prime Minister Tony Abbott and Singaporean Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong um, committed to a comprehensive partnership aimed at strengthening economic security and defence cooperation. Uh, here's uh, how that was described by uh, Amanda Cavill from SBS World News. The highlight of the visit has been the signing of the Singapore-Australia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership by the two Prime Ministers. Mr Abbott says it will see the two countries cooperating more closely across sectors such as economic, foreign affairs, defence and security, people-to-people ties and trade. I don't simply want Australia and Singapore to be friends. I want us to be family uh, in the years and decades to come. And if we can manage that, it will be of inestimable value to our two countries. Uh, Singapore is very conscious of the fact that it is uh, in a dynamic, yet sometimes challenging region, as we are. And we know that you can always do better uh, in a partnership than on your own. And let's make this the most intimate possible strategic, uh, economic and family partnership. Intimate, eh? A family partnership? With Singapore? Australia? With Singapore? I mean, does this worry you? I'll come back to that, but what uh, worried me, actually more just amused me, here's uh, from that same news report what Trade Minister Andrew Robb had to say. Mr Robb says the economic rise of Asia has made northern Australia the perfect place for new initiatives. The north of Australia is, is, is in the tropics. Uh, Singapore is in the tropics. <laughs> yes, Australia and Singapore both have warm weather, so we're identical. <laughs> for fuck's sake. Um, back to this family member thing. We are family with Singapore. Just how much does Australia really want to be like Singapore? And as you ponder that question, I want you to think about uh, the, the case of young Mr Amos Yee. He's 16 years old. He's a video blogger from Singapore. And I first stumbled across his work uh, in the form of his actually rather excellent tutorial how to speak singlish here's a here's an extract now the first thing in any language is pronunciation now in singlish we use an overabundance of auxiliary notes mixed in with akikyaturas and apogyaturas now if you see here in this visual description we can see that um auxiliary notes are notes which goes one step higher and then one step lower or notes which goes one step lower and then one step higher now we use the akikyaturas and apogyaturas in the last two notes to accommodate the auxiliary notes and then to add that little singlish accent so now and now let me give you an example. Instead of saying the word no as no, we say it as no or no. And then also the interval of the auxiliary notes also matter. With every increasing interval from third to fifth apart to sixth apart, we see it's a variation of both calmness and annoying. And with in every increasing interval, we show the amount of annoyingness and the amount of pleasantness a person is actually showing. So now we see, um, so now we can say the word no as no 
or no! And also, we can also vary the intervals between the first two notes and the last two notes. Like, um, like we see here, this, the first two notes could be a third part, while the last two notes could be a seventh part. We say no in that kind of notes, and then we can say it like this. No! Auxiliary notes are used mainly before a comma and a full stop. Also, the ending consonant sounds of every word in the Singlish is actually abolished and completely non-existent. So instead of saying the word want as wants, we gotta say the word as one. And instead of saying the word places as places, we gotta say the word as place. And also, um, words in a sentence come in pairs of octaves with um, a semitone or tone linking to the next pair. And also, if you want to express a greater noise in a sentence, we can um, hold on to the ending syllable of, uh, of the last word longer to express a greater noise. Combining everything that we've learned, we will, it will look something like this. It will sound something like this if we read that sentence. Um, no! I want chicken rice! Auxiliaries. Never forget the auxiliaries. And now on to grammatical structure. Now we have to understand that there are absolutely no usage of collective nouns and apostrophes in the language at all. So we can't say that we would like a plate of chicken rice. We have to say that I want chicken rice. And we can't say that um, we see a flock of birds. We have to say I see but. And we also can't say that I like to look at the teacher's table. You have to say I like to see teacher table. And we also have to know that all words are plural with no S's. So um, there's no need to add an S to make the word plural to show quantity. So there's no need to add S's in the word sweets. We can just say sweet. And we also have to understand that tenses of um, past, past participles, present participles, future and future participles are absolutely non-existent at all. All words should only be in the present tense. Combining all that we've learned, we'll look at the sentence, um, I would like a bunch of sweets on the teacher's table. In America, we say it as, I would like a bunch of sweets on the teacher's table. But in Singlish, we have to say it as, I want sweet on teacher table. Amos Yi, How to Speak Singlish, do hunt it down and watch the whole thing. It is both funny and linguistically correct. Link on the podcast website, as uh, there usually is for these things. But for whatever reason, I keep telling you that. I don't know why. I'm sure you should have worked out how to use the internet by now. I know I have. I know you should have. I can even do a podcast while walking along railway parade Wentworth Falls towards the village where I intend to buy some wine but be that as it may Amos Yee's How to Speak Singlish video is uh, amusing and relatively non-controversial obviously not so his video on the occasion of the death of Lee Kuan Yew here's the whole thing it runs for 8 minutes Lee Kuan Yew is dead, finally. Why hasn't anyone said, fuck yeah, the guy is dead? Lee Kuan Yew was a horrible person. Because everyone is scared. Everyone is afraid that if they say something like that, they might get into trouble, which, give Lee Kuan Yew credit, that was primarily the impact of his legacy. But I'm not afraid. So if Lee Hsien Long wishes to sue me, I will obliged to dance with him. Come at me, motherfucker. Lee Kuan Yew, contrary to popular belief, was a 
horrible person and an awful leader to our country. He was a dictator, but managed to fool most of the world to think he was democratic, and he did so by still granting us the opportunity to vote to make it seem like we have freedom of choice. However, during your rule, you controlled the entire media and education, proliferating nationalistic propaganda on a daily basis. Like right now, since Lee Kuan Yew is dead, all day you see 24-hour news coverage of necrophiliacs sucking Lee Kuan Yew's dick. And you place an excessive surplus of your books in popular bookstores. In most of his books, look at how he self-indulgently plasters reams of pages with these montage of pictures of his experiences. Like, ooh, look how much better I am compared to you. And of course, he is absolutely notorious for suing people who criticized him, forcing them into jail and leading them into bankruptcy. And apparently, his thirst for suing is hereditary, too. So he created an environment where his blatant flaws as a leader were hidden because most people were afraid of criticizing him in fear of being found guilty by the judicial system that he controls. So everything that people hear is about how great Lee Kuan Yew is. Of course he is able to deceive people into voting for him. Despite our voting rights, he is undoubtedly totalitarian. Now, seeing what Lee Kuan Yew has done, I'm sure many individuals who have done similar things comes to mind, but I'm going to compare him to someone that people haven't really mentioned before. Jesus. And the aptness of that analogy is heightened, seeing how Christian seems to be a really big fan of him. They are both power-hungry and malicious, but deceive others into thinking that they are compassionate and kind. Their impact and legacy will ultimately not last as more and more people find out that they're full of bull. And Lee Kuan Yew's followers are completely delusional and ignorant, and have absolutely no sound logic or knowledge about him that is grounded in reality. Reality, which Lee Kuan Yew very easily manipulates, similar to the Christian knowledge of the Bible and the work of a multitude of priests. On the surface, he seemed quite successful. He turned Singapore from a small seaport into a bustling metropolis, rife with skyscrapers and its own casino. World leaders seem to like him, most notably Margaret Thatcher, and many foreigners and millionaires wish to invest in Singapore. But you look deeper, and you find out what the true nature of Lee Kuan Yew's Singapore is. I'm sure most of your parents have told you how luxurious Singapore is and how if you go to another country, it would be much harder and much more expensive. But all you have to do is do a Google search, look at our country statistics, and you will find out how fucking delusional and ignorant and stupid your parents are. Most people in Singapore are struggling to make ends meet, and it is reported that Singaporeans work the longest hours in the world. We are one of the richest countries in the world, but we have one of the highest income inequalities, highest poverty rates, and our government spends one of the lowest on healthcare and social security. The money spent on the public is so low, it's more representative of a third world country. And yet the amount 
amount of taxes is one of the highest in first world countries. And political leaders in Singapore earns more than quadruple the amount earned by political leaders in the United States. They are acquiring so much money, why aren't they spending it on the people? What are they actually spending it on? One time an SDP member told me that once they got into power, they are going to take the key and open every cupboard and search out all the information on the government spending to find out what those motherfuckers have been doing with all that money. And whenever somebody wonders online if the government is pocketing the money for themselves, they get sued. Quite suspicious, isn't it? And how Lee Kuan Yew deemed what he considered as success was solely predicated upon measurable, concrete results. A rich country, the love of major powers, a positive public image. And his emphasis on results was transcendent onto how Singaporeans led their lives. Somebody who has the better house, the better results in an exam, the better degree, is deemed more successful than the other person. And because of this emphasis on pure materialism, it sacrificed our happiness. Because if someone is more concerned about money and status over what they're actually doing and their life, no fucking shit you would lead a depressing life. I think the biggest flaw of Lee Kuan Yew as a leader to our nation is that he honestly thought that Money and status equated to happiness. And his failure to understand how false that was really showed, leading us to be one of the richest countries in the world and one of the most depressed. Ultimately, how do you quantify a great leader? It is by how he creates a place where people are able to live happily and prosper based on their own unique attributes. And he hasn't. So no matter how rich the country he made is, or how many world leader dick he sucked, it doesn't mean a thing. His death was great for him too, seeing how he was struggling with an illness for several years, and even declared that he wished he was dead. He should have asked his son to pull the plug or committed suicide by himself. But he didn't. You know why? Because if he did, his band of sycophants who for decades have been voraciously sucking his oblong dick might despise him. And his oh-so-great reputation that he so desperately tried to uphold might shatter. Because it would be deemed quite controversial for a leader to end his life with suicide. And it is rather tragic, isn't it? that he had to suffer the last few years with the atmosphere of materialism and the meat-headed need for a positive image that he himself created. Karma really isn't that much of a bitch. So there you go, Lee Kuan Yew, an overrated, overglorified person, a dictator, and exceptionally Machiavellian in nature. Good riddance, Lee Kuan Yew. I neither hope and neither will you rest in peace. But now with his death and the upcoming elections next year, there is a high chance that us, citizens of Singapore, things can finally change for the better. Let's all hope for change. For good change. 
for every possible kind. That got him arrested. Amos Yee has been jailed, has been charged and found guilty of uh, posting insulting material, essentially, and uh, posting an obscene image. Uh, he is currently out on appeal and... Uh, uh, look, I, I haven't got the full details in front of me as I'm walking down the road, so I'll have that uh, strange disembodied computer voice tell us where we're up to in that case. Amos Yee was arrested and charged with showing intention of wounding religious feelings. He was sentenced to jail, but was released, as the time he had spent on remand was longer than his sentence. He is currently free, and is preparing an appeal against his conviction. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Amos Yee. There's... Uh been quite a bit of commentary uh, in the, the Southeast Asian press saying that this really does present a challenge for the Singaporean government, that uh, for once, someone isn't going quietly. They're not shutting up and conforming to social norms. They are deliberately pushing the boundaries of what is insulting, but still legal behaviour, or what is illegal behaviour. And uh, although this isn't uh, as full-on as the kind of conformity that uh, we spoke about in South Korea on the last episode, this is still uh, a bit of a challenge for Singapore. It'll be interesting to see what they do with Amos Yee. And it's in that context that I look at a couple of things happening in Australia. One is that... uh, journalist Josh Taylor, who has until recently been uh, one of my colleagues at ZDNet, but is now a a colleague in a different capacity. He's just joined Crikey down in Melbourne as uh, one of their journalists. He made the note that he should uh, start keeping his own file copies of the Attorney General's media releases, because when he put in a... uh... Yeah, I kind of lost it. At around that point, I mean, I was wandering down the road in Wentworth Falls. I, I realised I hadn't brought the latest version of my notes. Uh, I got attacked by a dog. Um, I, I kind of got bored with the whole thing. And, you know, that's where it goes. But to come back to the whole thing about Singapore, and let me get my notes in front of me now, because that's what I have, because I'm back here sitting in a nice, comfortable, warm room with a table. Josh Taylor is just kind of excellent at doing uh, freedom of information requests. And he'd noticed that a media release had disappeared off the Attorney General's website. So... As one of his questions, he put to the Attorney General's office, how many of the Attorney General's media releases have been taken down from the Attorney General's website since Senator Brandis became Attorney General? And this is the answer he got. Quote, It is not possible to provide a figure for the number of Attorney General media releases that the department has taken down since September 2013. To do so would involve a significant diversion of resources. However, the department is able to advise that the media release of 28th May 2015, which must have been the subject of the question, is not the only media release the department has taken down or not put up since September 2013. Whenever a decision is made to take down or not put up a media release, the officer making the decision has regard to the guidelines for ministerial and agency websites. Yes, because they're required to be properly archived 
because they're ministerial documents. I find this this excuse fascinating. A significant diversion of resources. Let's be real here. The number of media releases that the Attorney General would put out in a year would be at most in the order of hundreds, right? I mean, that's like a few a day every workday for two years. So it's a few hundred tops. So all you have to do is is get some fucking grunt junior public servant to sit there with a list of the approvals of media releases for them to exist and just click through the website and see which ones are there and not there. Significant diversion of resources. It's just fucking laziness and another excuse from the Attorney General's office not to be transparent. I mean, you've got to remember, this is the same Attorney General, the Honourable Senator George Soapy the Ankle Brandis QC, who can't even explain his own legislation, remember metadata, who recently, and this is a story in Crikey, which I won't bother looking up now, but he met with arts industry people in in Queensland, his home state, and they were surprised to discover he wasn't even across the details of his own changes to the arts funding budgets that he himself had only approved several months beforehand. Like, he got it wrong. And it's the same Attorney General who has decided not to publish public submissions to parliamentary inquiries on his ministerial website because they don't have the resources to make them accessible. And so technically, there would be a a proportion of the population who could not make use of that material because, you know, they were blind or or whatever it might be, and, and the material wasn't put up in some other way. So rather than at least trying to comply with the spirit of transparency by putting them up in whatever form they can afford to, they just don't put them up at all, so no one gets to see them. What a cunt. So this is where I start thinking, yeah, maybe we do want to be family with Singapore. Maybe we do want to become a completely non-transparent, non-democratic shopping mall and container terminal for the rest of the world. Although in Australia's case, it wouldn't be the container terminal and shopping mall. It'd be, what, a coal mine and the Great Barrier Reef if the fucking thing lives long enough. But it does seem that we're eager to suck up to Singapore. Why might that be? Singapore is Australia's fifth largest trading partner, with exports and imports last year worth about $27 billion. Singapore's investment in Australian property and companies is worth around $60 billion and is Australia's fourth largest source of foreign investment. Oh, yeah, that. (laughs) Of course. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. Now, as I indicated earlier, I can't actually tell you about the good wine, the very good wine that I've uh, been drinking in the earlier part of this week because it's a secret. But what I can do is talk a bit about why that was so good and why it's so difficult to find wines like that. The reason is that it was a 2010 Shiraz. 
from five years ago. And if you've tried buying red wine in Australia recently, you will have discovered that they they are just getting younger and younger. I mean, it's only midway through 2015 and already 2014 reds are on the shelves of the bottle shops. They are only picked from the goddamn grapevines kind of, what, 15 months ago. So what's going on here? I put that question to uh, Phil from Divine Cellars in Wentworth Falls. Is it just me or are the reds coming out younger these days? In Australia, they're always going to come out younger because the tax situation or the taxes that they apply to wines um, are applied yearly, which means that you're always going to accrue a tax on every barrel of wine depending on how long it's been held for. So Australian Australian wineries have to push the wines out as quickly as they possibly can because otherwise they're going to have that accrual of tax liability year upon year upon year. But that means we're seeing things like even Shirazes, we're seeing 2014 Shirazes coming out now, which is like, what, 14, 15 months after they were... Yeah, and that's, that's exactly right. So they bump up, they pick the grapes later so that they've got a higher sugar concentration so that they can ferment them to higher alcohols, which means that they're fruity and juicier and softer earlier in the process rather than having to wait for them to mellow out as the years go by. So what are our alternatives if we want an older, gutsier red? We just have to buy it and stash it away ourselves? Well, you either spend more money or you buy internationals. So you get um, wines from France or Spain or America or South America where they don't have the same sort of tax system that we have here. And I have been extremely happy with Chilean reds and Argentinian pinots. And, well, you can you get know. 2010 Chilean wines for less than you can buy new release Australian wines for. But it doesn't necessarily indicate the quality. Just because wines are young doesn't mean that they're not going to be drinkable. It just means that Australians are well, changing... It's different. It's well, different. Well, they're changing the way that they make the wine so that they can be drunk more readily and it means that ultimately like there's a there's a producer out from Dubbo who has changed the um, wording on the back of his bottle to say um, drink between five and ten years of age to drink it now and buy another bottle because the nature of the way that wines are being made now just means that they're being made to be immediately consumed. So this is another story of Australian innovation in winemaking, isn't it? Look, Australia is the most scientific country in the world when it comes to wine. Or Pale um, Roseworthy Agricultural well, College. Absolutely, and even Charles Sturt has its own claims to fame. But one of the reasons that the scoring systems for a lot of um, wine judges around the world are being thrown off is because of the fact that Australian wines are at such a high quality regardless of price that you don't get bottles of wine that are bad. You only get bottles of wine that aren't specifically to your taste. So if you try some of the awful Vendetables that come out from France at 10 bucks a bottle. They are truly awful. They are undrinkably rough. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, someone I shared house with who now is a, a medico in the UK under the, the NHS, she, that's the one thing she misses of Australia is that she can buy inexpensive wine without poisoning herself. Yeah, and that's exactly right, is that Australia because of its scientific focus inside the innovation of wine industry has meant that that quality is always there. So you can pretty much trust one to be drinkable even if it's not to your taste, but once again, it's another part of the process of making sure that you can um, make wine as readily approachable and as quickly as possible. And last week, Yellowtail shipped its one billionth bottle of wine. Oh, that's about three months ago now. Oh, is it? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It was in the media last uh, week. Um, but uh, the re- look, the reality of it is... Um, <laughs> 
that Yellowtail is one of the great Australian success stories. And Absolutely. we should be very, I've very been proud at of National ICT Australia where their logistics operation and the computer support and making sure all of those container ships full of Australian wine. Bladders. <laughs> giant container-sized bladders of wine are being shipped out. So um, that's also another innovation which was fantastic is that they ship It's not like bladders. a giant wine cask. Yeah, no. and uh, It is exactly a giant rubber wine cask. And the reason they started doing that was because in the UK market, actually McGuigan started this, in the UK market they don't have any means of recycling green glass. So the glass that you get as wine bottles, they can't do anything with. So you were having this massive build-up of green glass over the years that no one could do anything with except ship over to France or spend ludicrous amounts of money to get back to the place of origin. So we started shipping ba- um, big sort of bladders of wine over and they so you're actually saving on carbon credits as you do it because instead of shipping bottles in uh, uh, wine in bottles which weighs more, you're labelling onshore which means that you don't have to worry about all of that excess cost and all of that excess fuel. Well, thank you, Phil. I did not expect anyone to say giant bladders of wine to me this <laughs> evening. Giant bladders of wine. I just had to say it again. Have a great night. Now give me $32. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and your subscriptions and one-off contributions. This episode, it's thanks and welcome to a new cheeky red subscriber with a deep wallet, uh, Mr. Paul Williams, and uh, schooner subscriber, John Lawrence, who's also a nice chap. And thank you also to generous one-off contributors from Network Presence. I haven't got your name in front of me, but Network Presence is the name of the business. And Martin Barry. Thank you very much. It's much appreciated. Now, normally at this point, I would give you the web addresses for where to go to subscribe or make a one-off tip. But this time, this episode only, there's something far more important and i hinted at it earlier hinted hinted i hinted at it earlier the 9 p.m urgent hardware refresh as you've heard my computer is fucked i mean really fucked and i'm kind of stressed out about that now i'm not going to make a big deal of it except to say that I need a new computer pretty much immediately and I've got to deal with a number of personal matters. So the 9pm Urgent Hardware Refresh is a crowdfunding campaign through Possible, the Australian crowdfunding platform, uh, which I've successfully used before. And some of you may know this because you get bills through them and whatever each month. The thing is, how this is going to work is that I'm kind of running a telethon, except it's not television and it's not live and it's not a charity. But if you contribute money, I will do things in a special episode of this very podcast in exchange for that money. And if we hit the target, that means I get, well, it means that that episode happens and I get the new machine and life is sweet for all of us in a in a glossy hand-holding kumbaya wonderland of love so here's where you're going to go just this once okay you're going to go to the possible website at possible.com 
P-O-Z-I-B-L-E dot com slash edict two because it's the second edict-related campaign I've run. Go there or just go to my website and click through or just Googleify your way to the 9 p.m. urgent hardware request uh, refresh. The 9 p.m. urgent hardware refresh, that is... I clearly haven't had enough wine. There's... A range of options, ranging from just, you know, be a be a good media freedom citizen and chuck in a few bucks, up to being able to fund a two minutes hate where I will give you the benefit of my opinion on the subject of your choice for two minutes. You can choose whether the language level is clean, explicit, or the full Malcolm Tucker. I did say that, the full Malcolm Tucker. And we've had a few come in. I'm pleased to say that as I record this, we are over 45% of the way to the first target, which is great. But some of the topics that people want me to expound upon are fantastic. Uh, One is just battery life. Uh Uh-huh. The declining standards of wankery in public discourse. One chap... Excuse me. One chap has said, please direct abuse to nowhere, Bob, whale molester and dugong fancier. (laughs) There's there's more to find out about that. And my favourite so far, someone wishes to me expound for two minutes on the song I Want Your Love by Transvision Vamp and how it has sculpted Australian society to date. I think you can also come up with some fantastic questions for me to talk about in the 9pm Urgent Hardware Refresh. There's just a few days to go. The campaign closes Thursday night, this coming Thursday, the 6th of August at 2100 at 9pm that Thursday night, Sydney time. I would really love to just take away all the stress of getting a new machine. I'd love to get the, the target too and get some kit to record out in the field. Go to the website, check it out, sign your life away, put your credit card number on the internet where it is in so many places already, so I don't know why you even consider worrying about this. Or oh, we take PayPal. There's another way that you can contribute to this podcast, you know, and that is by injecting your brain into the proceedings. By sending an audio comment, uh, go to the website if you want to see how to do that. But basically, you can either phone or Skype a certain uh, thing and and record your message on voicemail, or you can record an audio comment using whatever fucking excellent audio equipment you have at your disposal and then email me uh, a li- I shouldn't play with the pen well, that's really bad technique uh, go to the website if you want to contribute an audio comment we've only had one person supplying such things of late and that is my friend and former housemate Nicholas Fryer living just south of Adelaide in South Australia here's his latest contribution Of all the tool-using, language-wielding bipedal primates on the planet, human beings are a notoriously fractious species. There's absolutely nothing on which you can get truly universal agreement. There are still people denying that the Earth's round, so we clearly haven't even finished the global rollout of neurons. But even amongst people who can tie their own shoelaces, fundamental and obvious statements like Jose Mourinho is a self-regarding ass," or 
A film of Alan Jones fucking Rupert Murdoch with a chainsaw would be the only worthwhile media either of them have ever produced, would struggle to get 70% of hands going up. Accordingly, any sentiment around which more than, say, a billion or two of us can muster is one we need to take seriously, agree with it or not. I'm not personally on board with any of the world's major faiths, nor particularly enamoured of the nuclear family, or funky with the notion that the discussion of sex or the sight of nudity is somehow damaging to childhood. But all of these are ideas with substantial followings, and they need to be factored into calculations, whether of social dynamics on the mass political scale, or merely avoiding having your neighbour set fire to your cat. One idea with similar levels of support to some of those above is the thesis that the United States of America is pretty completely appalling. There's backing for this notion at governmental level in countries as diverse as Iran, Russia, Venezuela, France and dozens of others on every continent. And the ordinary citizens of the globe who'd be in favour of simply burning the place down and starting a fresh legion, and include, demonstrably, much of the non-white population of the country in question. I suspect that an absolute majority of the human population has at one time or another been repelled by some cultural export of the world's brain-dead megaphone, if I may so twist George Saunders' memorable image. Even your correspondent, admitted by his peers as a paragon of equanimity and laissez-faire, has been known to grumble when parental duties periodically require him to permit Hollywood's movie moguls to urinate in his brain pan for 90 minutes. Whether they're bombing you with drones or just droning on like drongos, America is just goddamn easy to hate. So, I thought I'd share with you a couple of the little reasons that I, much of the time, I find America just adorbs. The first is dates, not the social kind, which for yours truly is something of a sore point at the moment, but the temporal. Of course, the way Americans write their dates is dumb. On no basis of consistency, aesthetics or logic is it defensible to put the month first, the day second and the year last. It's all over the paddock, unlike the rest of us, who at least write them consistently backwards. As Randall Monroe pointed out in his webcomic XKCD, the International Standards Organization settled this ages ago. The most significant digits go first. For numbers, thousands, then hundreds, then tens, then units, sounds right, doesn't it? Hours, then minutes, then seconds? All right then. Year, then month, then day, and let's have no further nonsense. The cutest thing about American dates isn't that they don't know how to write them, it's that they're the last to get to them. The further west you go, the earlier it is. So when it's lunchtime on Sunday in Adelaide, which is of course widely accepted as the closest thing to paradise to be found on Earth, it's before breakfast in London, but in New York it's late night on Saturday. In California it's still only dinner time, and in Alaska, right up against the dateline, it's still the 1980s. Every July the 4th, when the evening news shows pictures of thousands of Americans waving that beautiful flag of theirs, and yee-hawing or boo-yaring or whatever the latest neologism for I'm quite excited is, to me it all looks so, well, yesterday. Another, aren't you so cute, thing about America is antiquated weights and measures. For a country founded on explicit rejection of empire, fueled by the Enlightenment, funded by the French, America's alligator bite around the ankles of imperial measurements is astonishing. Anyone like me who's been schooled in both systems, 
whose early training even causes him instinctively to think of himself as 5'11 and 10 stone, even though for years he's been writing down 180 centimetres and a weight in kilograms that can't possibly be right, knows that only committed masochists would voluntarily inflict ounces, yards, shillings and Fahrenheit on themselves. The metric system was, of course, invented by the French, and was ipso facto viewed with suspicion by Anglophones for a long time. But Australians adopted it nigh on 50 years ago, and even the British have recently been bending under the sheer weight of the convenience of simply moving a decimal point around. To give you an idea about how momentous it is for the British, um, in particular the English, to fall in line with the French, remember that other ideas, championed by the French, about which the English still insist at least publicly, that they want nothing to do with, include nice food and sex. So it really is a testament to the sheer logic of le système international to see English sausages sold by the kilogram, rather than incinerated as biohazardous waste. And yet America is, as ever, still prepared to put in the hard yards and to go the extra mile. They even went to the moon in feet and inches, If you listen to the recording of Neil Armstrong talking himself down to the lunar surface on what they still think was July the 20th, poor lambs, you can hear him counting out his speed in feet per second, despite the fact that the computer on board would have struggled with the maths, sorry, math, needed to convert that to miles per hour. And of course, sometimes it goes horribly wrong. In September 1999, NASA's ground computer told a spacecraft to enter Martian orbit in Imperial units when the craft was expecting, not unreasonably, modernity. As a result, the Mars Climate Orbiter failed to do much orbiting, but did have a small and transient effect on Mars's climate, as it burned up better than half a billion dollars in the planet's atmosphere. So there you go. The next time you get depressed about the only country whose citizens wave their own flag on television more, and make even worse films, than the North Koreans, just remember, they're stuck in the past, and they don't know any better but they can still land a spacecraft, most of the time. Elephant stamp time! Elephant stamp time! Each episode of this podcast, I give elephant stamps of approval to people who have been exceptional in the category of thinking. And I've got two this time, two, I was about to say this week, it's actually this month, that's pretty terrible, isn't it? This will be fixed up during August, trust me. Um, two, one to Australian opposition leader, Burnt Fagend, um, Bill Shorten, who tweeted on the 21st of July, Labour wants all kids to crack codes. Um, which clearly indicates that either he or his staffer doesn't actually know what coding is as opposed to cracking codes. Bravo, well done. If you are trying to uh, position your party as some sort of future-looking organisation and saying, yes, we have a vision for Australia's future, then at least try to understand words that have been in common use for decades. Actually, the Australian Labor Party does have a vision for Australia. Its vision is to get to the end of the day without accidentally making an impact on anyone or anything or anyone noticing. Bill Shorten's the man for your job. Elephant stamp of approval to Bill Shorten. And the second one, well, I really have to go back to the United States uh, for this one. Not to Florida, though. 
But to Tennessee, here's a report from the Chattanooga News. Police say an East Tennessee woman charged with counterfeiting blames President Obama. 45-year-old Pamela Downs told officers that she read online that the president made a new law allowing her to print her own money. Police were called to a grocery store in Kingsport where a clerk received a bill that was printed on computer paper and the back and front were glued together. The woman told officers they could search her purse. Inside, they found a counterfeit $100 bill printed in black and white with the backside upside down. Police say up to $50,000 in counterfeit bills were found at her apartment. Well done. Elephant stamp of approval to Pamela Downs of Kingsport, Tennessee. And what I particularly like about the raw story uh, post about this particular incident, that yes, she had uh, in her purse bills printed in black and white with one side glued on upside down and receipts for the uh, printer and copy paper she'd bought at Walmart. All of these things must be bought at Walmart. Um, The thing I like about the the raw story version of this yarn is that after being handcuffed and placed in a cruiser, Downs reportedly said, I don't give a fuck all these other bitches get to print money so I can too. Who are all these other bitches? That's what I want to know. Elephant stamp of approval to Pamela Downs. Uh, If you see something that is worthy of an elephant stamp, do let me know. brings this edition, this episode, this excretion of the 9pm edict podcast to a close. I won't go through any of the other details because there is a whole internet thing where you can find out about this. All I will say is that do, please, consider contributing to the 9pm Urgent Hardware Refresh. And if you can't do that personally, show it to your cashed-up friends of whom you are constantly, constantly jealous. The next episode of The Edict will appear when I damn well feel like it. Until then, I'm still Gerian. Have a great life. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.